Hello and welcome to Cinemakers. This is episode 45, the RKSS Collective, Turbo Kid and Summer of 84. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And before we introduce our special guest, who was on our last standalone one-off episode, Mike, we sort of ran into a, a weird little thing that in between seasons of Cinemakers, like, you know, between Soderbergh and Christopher Nolan, we did one of these one-offs. Between Nolan and, I guess we can announce on tonight's episode, you know, who we're doing next. We like to do these little one-off episodes where it's, you know, two or three movies by the state by one filmmaker, or in this case, three, who we sort of compare and contrast. Instead of doing, like, an episode about a person's 10 or 20 or 30 movies, it's just a one, maybe longer, maybe a normal episode, whatever, comparing and contrasting two different movies. And what was weird is when we were trying to figure out who to do for this round, we realized that a lot of the people that we had put for two movies now had three. And a lot of people we had three now had four movies. And it's sort of like, oh, we kind of have to grab them when we can. And when we were thinking about this, Summer of 84 had just hit on demand. You know, I hadn't seen it yet, but I loved Turbo Kid. Or maybe I had seen it yet. But, you know, Turbo Kid and Summer of 84, even if you don't love both movies, and spoilers, I love both movies, I think that there's a lot to, at least a lot to talk about, if not a lot to appreciate or find enjoyable, even if they don't all fully work for you. But the RKSS Collective, who are da, 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 Francois Simard, Anouk Whistle, and Johan Carl Whistle. So it's two guys and a girl, and the pizza place. And they directed these two movies, and I saw them in person at South by Southwest when I saw Turbo Kid at midnight, and we'll talk about that. But to talk to us tonight, to talk with us tonight. To talk at you. About these two movies, he was on the Fede Alvarez. He was the host of Real Bad, another show here on the Podcast Network. It's Nick Jenkins. Hello, Nick. Was? He still is the host. <laughs> he was, he still is, he will forever be the host of Real Bad. I don't always listen to what I say, how I say it. The host of Nick Jenkins, it's Nick Jenkins. I am my own host, thank you. So thank you for being here. You know, we kind of like your status as this like special one-off kind of guy, but there's a couple directors that we're going to have you on to talk about their entire filmography. And so you won't always be this, but two in a row, you're, you're sort of starting a pattern here, starting a trend. I enjoy this, especially this one, because I had not seen either of these movies before. This was a first-time experience, so I enjoyed that part of it. Because even the movies that I do on my podcast, I've usually seen before uh, in some way or another, just because I enjoy really? watching. Okay. Yeah, I enjoy watching terrible movies just because, I don't know, it's like waking up from a nightmare is sometimes preferable to waking up from a dream. Because like you wake up from a nightmare and it's like, oh, look how good my life is. But then you wake up from the perfect dream and you're like, oh, look, I'm back in my stupid life. So sometimes watching a crappy movie, you can go like, okay, you know, there are other movies that are good. Yay. That's definitely a glass half full mentality about the <laughs> terrible, terrible movies that you subject yourself to every Monday right here on the Cage Club Podcast Network for Real Bad. Now, Mike, you had seen Turbo Kid because I think I shouted about Turbo Kid to everybody I knew when I saw Turbo Kid in 2015. But had you seen Summer of 84 before we watched it for this? So I was gonna watch it before, but you were like, hold on, have an idea for <laughs> mm -hmm. sort of mini episode here, or whatever we're doing, whatever we're calling these. And I was like, all right, you know, in, in true Cage Club fashion, I hold off. I was like, okay, embargo for a few weeks. So no, I'd seen Turbo Kid once. I really loved it. It uh, totally caught me off guard. And uh, that was great. And this was the first time I saw Summer of 84. I've got a lot of complex feelings about that one. I'm not so much like 100% on it, but I did enjoy it to a certain degree, and I do think it's got like a lot of uh, merit, and there's a lot of cool shit going on in that movie. So this is really cool. I mean, I, I'll just state, I did not know when I first watched Turbo Kid that it was directed by three people, that it was like this 
director's collective thing and watching it on the second time and then knowing that for 84 uh, I definitely uh, you know had that in my mind watching it and like was looking for ways that might have played into tone style whatever plot ideas and everything like that so uh, that was just a really cool sort of thing to find out and uh, I'm not aware of any other movies modern movies at least that uh have pulled something like this off so this really cool idea and i'm really looking forward to getting into this oh one thing i do want to say before we get too deep into this episode is that this past weekend as we're recording this uh, or today as you're listening to this i spoke to brian rodriguez of the high school slumber party podcast he and alex schroeder who was on his my friend Dahmer episode the three of us all talked about summer of 84 exclusively for high school slumber party so this is the second time we're talking about this movie in just a couple days we're going to talk about like different things and stuff but if you want more about summer of 84 specifically go check out the high school slumber party podcast today for a little bit of a crossover of sorts episode on cage club so nick you've never seen either what are your thoughts i know your thoughts kind of on summer of 84 because you you were very specifically critical about one or two things when we recorded the gringo episode for watch of throne but what are your <laughs> thoughts on both turbo kid and summer of 84 well turbo kid was an, an interesting surprise of a movie i'd seen it on the netflix you know as i'm scrolling through netflix a few times and i was always like michael ironside i love michael ironside so i kind of want to watch this and it had been in my queue for a while so it had been on my list and when we found out we were going to do this I think where it came from is you and I were texting back and forth about something and you said Mad Max on BMX's and I was like I'm sold I will watch that movie so I didn't really have any expectations going into it. Didn't know what to think. I didn't know anything about the collective. So it was all new information. And I had a good time watching it, mostly for actors. I thought 90% of that cast did a great job, especially Apple. Apple is adorable. She is great and committed to that part, like just full on committed. And it was wonderful to watch like she just steals every scene she's in it's kind of a big performance but it's not like a jack sparrow performance she's really good it's cute i like the relationship between turbo kid and her and i like michael ironside i like some of the elements of the science fiction they did Uh, some of my criticisms of that are like this feels like a first time writer in that you know the world is not really built too completely because I found myself having a lot of questions about things, but it didn't really matter because it's kind of a goofy, fun movie and it's okay. It served its purpose. Like this is something that if some of my students went out and made after they graduated, I would be like, I am so proud of you guys. Good job. What I like about that kind of mentality is that one of my... So, okay, so here, just to just to take a quick detour for a second, I want to give them credit because I do think that they were very, very young filmmakers when they made this, that they had made short films before. I think you see posters. I think they're in Turbo Kid's hideout. This was a short film first, right? And then it was expanded? So, well, so yeah, so they made a bunch of short films. This was originally submitted to the ABCs of Death for Tease for Turbo. Nick, do you know about ABCs of Death? I do, yeah. So I think they just submit, like a bunch of people submit a bunch of things. They pick one for each letter and they do a different short film about a different way to die. And so I don't think Tease for Turbo made it. I think it might be on the Blu-ray or something. It's definitely online that you can see it, but it was this idea of this future dystopia. So they, I guess based on the short film success, they kind of cobbled together money from a bunch of different places. Like this is a Canadian-Australian production, co-production. And one of my favorite moments about seeing this at South by Southwest at midnight is the opening of this movie where there are like 18 or 19 production logos. It's basically like, you want to give me two grand? Cool, like we'll throw your logo at the beginning or whatever. But the 
enti- there was an entire row in the theater of like producers and cast and crew and everything, and they were counting down. They're like, or counting up, I guess. They're like seven, eight, nine. Like, every time there's a new production, so like they are sort of in on the joke. Like they know that this is ridiculous, but it kind of feels like that sort of slightly, you know, student film or like slightly after, where it's just people who know what they're doing but don't haven't really refined it yet but are just getting money from wherever and, like, creating a world that might not be fully fleshed out, but is such a cool, interesting way to sort of jump off and, like, maybe be your first feature film as this, like, little collective group. Absolutely. And it reminded me a little bit of the the way Sam Raimi financed Evil Dead, in that it just anywhere, he went to relatives, he went to dentists, he went to, you know, he just went anywhere he could and just like, hey, instead of blowing money in Vegas, blow money on our film that we're going to make, because you, you stand a chance to make a better return, and just built it up. And I like that idea. I like that go get them idea that it's kind of rare to see now. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's rare to to see out in the forefront of a I'm this is not a major motion picture, but, you know, of a motion picture like this. So and then summer of 84, you were less fond of. No, I hated summer of 84. <laughs> I got 10 minutes into summer of 84 and it was a lot for me to not just turn it off and then come back to it to finish it. There's a lot nice to say about it, I think. I like I have very nice things to say about one the cinematography in that is yeah, going from one to the other is a huge step up. It is, and I, I pretty much went, I think, one night to the next night. I watched one, mm-hmm. then the other. And I also want to state that, man, I came in with all the goodwill in the world because I really enjoyed Turbo Kid. Flaws and all, I really enjoyed it. And so I was like, oh, great, I can't wait to see what they do on their second time out. Let's see what this brings. And again, like, performances are good. Cinematography's really good. I just felt alienated by the movie early on. Should we talk about the plot of Summer of 84 or, or Turbo Kid? Because I feel like talking about my my nitpicks about Summer of 84 kind of get plot related. Sure. Turbo Kid is the story of the future. The year is 1997. And it's like after some kind of cataclysmic worldwide event where there's no, there's really no clean water. And it's essentially Mad Max where there's like these roving bands of ne'er-do-wells and there's this kid just called The Kid and eventually becomes Turbo Kid when he finds a Turbo Rider suit who's just trying to survive and, you know, he's got his 80s nostalgia kind of things like his Viewfinder and Viewmaster or whatever and comic books and superhero obsession and everything like that and he kind of falls in with the wrong crowd after he meets Apple, who we later find out is a robot, and they just kind of have to survive, and then eventually, you know, take on Michael Ironside, who, in a Batman twist of things, killed Turbo Kid's parents, and so he kind of has to have revenge on him at the end. And there's also the help of the cowboy, who's like this local arm wrestling hero, uh, who in like the second scene gets his hand chopped off, so he like loses the one thing that he has, but he kind of rebounds as well. But it is, you know, like I told Nick, like Nick said earlier, it is Mad Max on BMX. So like, if you like a post-apocalyptic world where there's technology, but it's mostly, feels like almost like all the gasoline or the guzzoline, to use Mad Max terms, has been depleted, and now we're just on, you know, bicycles. Like, it's not just Turbo Kid who uses a bicycle. Like, when Michael Ironside at the end calls his goons in, they all ride in on bicycles. And it's kind of like, it's kind of funny, but also it stays true to the world. One criticism I have of that film is, like, I could have done with more of that. Like, I would have loved a really kick-ass chase scene, you know, Mad Max style on BMXs and stuff. And they they hinted that, but, I mean, that stuff's hard and dangerous to do. So, you know, when you're working on a low budget, you do what you can. The one thing I do want to point out about the BMX element of it is that this is the first time I've seen this movie since I saw Rad. And so for it to open with the song from Rad with Thunder in Your Heart, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Like, I just thought it was a cool song when I saw this movie the first time. And then I was like, oh my god, this is the song from Rad. And... 
and Rad rules. Like, Rad is one of my favorite films I've seen this year for the first time. Like, a 1986 movie all about BMX racing. But I just love that element of it. And then I guess the plot of Summer of 84 is there's a bunch of neighborhood kids, probably too many for the movie, honestly. And there's a setting in 1984, believe it or not. And there's a lot of discord in terms of politics, in terms of divorce, in terms of broken homes. A lot of themes of the 80s. It's set in Oregon, and there's this Kate May Slayer who has killed and dismembered and hidden or buried 13 boys of the area. And really from the beginning of the movie, the main kid, Davey, posits that his neighbor, who's played by Rich Summer of Mad Men, who is a cop, that he is the killer. And so the whole movie is he and his friends are trying to get the proof they need to prove that this cop is the killer. The movie goes on. The parents find out. Like they, they bring the evidence, the quote-unquote evidence they have to their parents. Parents say, that's not true. He's a cop. We've known him since, you know, before you were born. Things sort of break bad even further. Then they do find out that he actually is the killer. The cop is the killer. And what is remarkable, like what made me, like I was already into the movie, and I'll talk about it more, but what made me really love it is that he gets away in the end. And I don't know how many movies do that that are, you know, going to be sort of a standalone movie, but it's just like this, I think, ballsy move to be like, oh yeah, he's a serial killer. The whole time you've known it, the kids knew it, they proved it, and yet it didn't matter. And it's all about, you know, fears of suburbia and like the most, what does they say, like the most fucked up shit happens in suburbia. And it is this whole kind of send up in a way, but also just like Turbo Kid, there's like a synth pop soundtrack, 80s nostalgia, and all that sort of stuff that permeates through both movies. It's very rear window, the second one as well, too. So just very much hung on that. And Disturbia stole too, and we like Disturbia too. Like, I don't think that's necessarily a knock against it, yeah. Personally, I expected it to go in a completely different direction. That was one of my disappointments with Summer of 84, was that it sort of just hung on that way too much. But I do agree that, like, the ending kind of saved it for me. The big problems I have with this is not the movie's fault. And I need to put that up front, is I am just burned out on 80s nostalgia. I have seen too much. And then there were some moments in here that I'm just like, okay, this is just Stranger Things. You've got the CBs. You've got the kids talking to each other. Oh, my God. It's just so I really like it's not entirely the fault of the film. It's that I just feel like I've been inundated by it. And I grew more disappointed as it went on when I realized, oh, they're not going to do anything with this. They're not they're not twisting it in any way. It's just you like the 80s nostalgia. And this is a movie rooted in 80s nostalgia. And for me, that it became a little bit of a wall for me to get over. Mm -hmm. I definitely feel the same way. Like, uh, I feel like both of these movies are very heavily, like, reliant on being retro, like, feeling retro and sort of that love of the 80s, and which is a little strange since, like, it feels like they're in love with American 80s, but they're not American, which is fine. But, like, it's just being filtered through that foreign lens. So sometimes that's why it just feels to me maybe a little off-putting because there's too much of it. It's, like, overloaded, especially with 84. It seems like there was, like, a giant board and they wrote everything on it and they just made sure that they ticked everything off that board. I, I like it more in Turbo Kid because it's like this cutesy gore fest, right? Like, uh, there's something so bizarre about the tone of it. We have not talked about how gory it is. It is so... It's, it's so bloody. It feels more like a canon film or something that slip, slipped through the cracks and more retro in that sense in that this is a movie that would be watched by the kids in summer of 84 so i feel like that sort of step removed from reality helped me consume it more and makes me like it better uh, but summer of 84 i just felt like it was it was really uh, overbearing at times with all of that 
I agree with that. And I think one of the things to me, I'm, I'm much more lenient on films that are kind of bonkers. And Turbo Kid is definitely over the top bonkers. And, you know, Summer of 84 is much more subdued, purposefully. Like, it is it is intentionally a, a much more subdued film. And it just, for me, it was, yeah, I, I, at that point, I just started watching them tick the boxes as opposed to being drawn into the film. Yeah, I think for Summer of 84, where it lost me was how it set up all of this, I mean, stuff that I was really not expecting where this kid was sort of enamored with, you know, the weekly world news stuff like Bigfoot, UFO, and they were dropping all these hints that I was like, oh, so the end of this, everything that they're talking about is sort of going to happen. Like, it feels like this kind of crew, this collective is going in that direction. So when they just sort of rely on Rear Window, which, you know, it's fine and everything, but I was just like, they could have gone much further with it and I would have bought it. I would have believed that there was an alien in this movie or that the guy was a demon or something even further. So I was just a little disappointed to that degree that they that they didn't push it as hard. So I can see where you're coming from, but I also, so when I saw his obsession with Bigfoot and all that kind of stuff, I just saw that as like a kid in suburbia and even talk about this like you know when when they find out that there is a serial killer right that they heard they heard on the news there's a curfew or whatever the parents are all worried and they're like the kid's like oh my god like this is the most exciting thing that's ever happened like i just saw it as a kid wants desperately for anything to happen felt like the thing that was going to happen was the serial killer which it was like i just think that like my mind went there like if i if my mind went to like oh there's gonna be like one of his crazy national enquirer-esque stories that comes to life if i thought that i would probably be disappointed too I didn't think that the movie was going for anything more than that. Like, I feel like, I don't want to say, like, I didn't give the movie too much credit, but, like, by not thinking it was going to go crazier, I wasn't disappointed, if that makes sense. Well, here's my two things. There are two, really, for me, there are two big things that I do put on the filmmakers. And one of them, you guys may just tell me this is my problem, and that's totally cool if that happens. But when the kids started talking to each other, you know, they show the kid at the beginning delivering papers and I am with it. I'm with it. And like, they're OK, there's something weird about that guy. That's fine. But then the kids start all talking to each other. And I am not an easily offended person. But the amount of talk of jerking off and sex and humping your friend's leg and talking about the neighbor's boobs and just like it just never ended and for me it became impenetrable because i was like this is not like any friendship i have ever had i have never seen or witnessed anything like this and i went i was around with some really nasty kids when i was their age in junior high i still have a scar on the back of my leg from one kid stabbing me just for the hell of it and everybody was well aware of of sex and all of that but there there was a level to which this just never ended that i couldn't believe anymore and maybe that's just me but it it felt so manufactured that i just tuned out about the 10 or 15 minute mark where i was just like i have no idea who these kids are i i don't know what world they live in they are so overly sexualized it was weird to me so that that was my first point <laughs> so i don't know is this more like what you guys experienced was i a weird no yeah not me either i think there's like a ring of truth to it as with everything else in this movie right and it's all just amplified too much like to the point of it's obnoxious like that's what i sort of meant about turbo kid where i could take it and you know he finds a rubik's cube fine i get it it's you know the post-apocalypse and they're into the 80s but like in in this movie it just feels like every time they turn a corner there's a reference you know so it's not just their language that i feel is amplified as everything is over the top too much for me it gets a little obnoxious and and in the way yeah i definitely 
felt like it was kind of a hump. But though by the end, it's not that I accept it, but I come to understand the kids a little better. And it's one of my common complaints. I wish we got a little more of their house life earlier in the movie, you know, where we find out they sort of have like these, these troubled like lives at home and stuff. So like that really would have helped sell their attitude for me. I 100% agree with that. And, and it also just tapered off by the end which was good. My other thing with this script, which is interesting to me because I'm currently working on a screenplay that is a mystery, and it's very paralyzing to write a mystery script because when do I give clues? When do I not give clues? When do I subvert audience expectation and make them think they're going one direction but we go another? My problem with this film is... I never felt like the they were trying to steer me in any other direction other than this is the killer and this kid is right. Normally, especially with him being into, you know, conspiracy theories and aliens and stuff like that, I thought that they were going to do something to try to make me think, okay, yeah, the kid's wrong and he's hurting people. And then there's, you know, there's a twist. Kind of like I felt like this movie was a, a non-comedy version of The Burbs. Right. So like with the comedy, you're you're allowed to get away with a lot of stuff. But when you're taking it kind of deadly serious like this, I kept waiting to go like, OK, well, when is the twist coming that he's not the killer? Because clearly he's the killer. And that was something also that by the end of it, I was just sort of like, I agree with that, that ending twist, even though at that point it ha- I had lost most of my goodwill. But I still like the idea of like, OK, well, that's different that it, it ends on a really down note <laughs> of just fear and anxiety, you know, and that could have been cool. But like I said, my goodwill was gone and I never was surprised by the movie. And that frustrated me because I think it was, again, impeccably well acted. Like they got a much more experienced cast all around and they were all wonderful. And so it was just frustrating for me. And those were my two big reasons. Okay, so a few different things. While I was watching this movie, it reached a point where I was like, oh, no, he like because the movie from the beginning tells you that he has to be the killer. And then like you, Nick, I was thinking like, well, if he's not the killer, at what point do we start getting that sense? And we got to a point where, like, it could conceivably not be him as the killer, but if that was true, there wasn't a viable alternative. That didn't sort of bother me. And I think part of the reason that didn't bother me, like, a lot of the other stuff didn't bother me. Like, I also didn't have friends who, like, just talked about, you know, jerking off and craving hustlers, because I also did not grow up in this era. And I think maybe... I did. This was my era, by the way. And I wonder if, because you and Mike are both older than me, and I wonder if the fact that you both grew up in the 80s, as opposed to me just learning about the 80s through movies, because this feels to me like the 80s. Like, it feels like what the movies have presented as the 80s. But if it's not reality, I can see why people who look at this as, like, this document of the 80s or whatever, why it would bother them. Because it's not my first-hand experience, so I'm not upset that it's not true to life so that there's that but the other thing is that like i was into this movie i was appreciating this movie i was enjoying this movie and then i heard this like i was paying attention to the score and i was like why does this sound familiar and i looked it up and i was like the mottos i was like oh oh right he did turbo kid and i was like wait a minute the directors who did turbo kid also were gonna do another movie and i was like oh shit this is that movie and so like i am so oblivious to the movies i'm watching most of the time that i didn't realize this was those directors and so i think that the goodwill that the movie had earned for me early on was then just like forever bolstered and like impenetrable to use 
Nick's term in a positive way, anything that the movie did to possibly offend me or bother me or whatever couldn't get over the fact that I was already enjoying it, and it was from this trio of directors that I had really loved their first movie. And so, like, it was just sort of this combination of things, plus the fact that, you know, I'm not offended by inaccurate 80s, because I don't know what the 80s were, because I was born at the end of 87. There was nothing about this movie that I was like, oh, no, that, like, that's turning me off. Like, there are things I don't necessarily like about it, but I was into it from start to finish. This is like a romanticized version of the 80s. Oh, I believe it. Yeah, I mean, but I feel like (laughs) all of it is. Like, even Stranger Things, too, right? Like, all of it is. Yeah, but I mean, it's also the reason why I hate, like, Ready Player One. You know, it's like the same sort of idea behind it all. It's like, I love it. Part of me can't even explain it. Yeah, it's a it's a tightrope, I think, that you have to watch it. Sometimes a reference can be fun and engaging and funny, and then sometimes it's just like, yeah, that's the A-team. I get it. What else? What What else about this? You know, Stranger Things, I think, was the first one that I got really engrossed in, at least the first season. I actually didn't even finish the second season. But the first season, I was like, oh, this is cool. They're They're doing a nostalgia bit while also making it a period piece. That's kind of interesting to me. And then by the end of it, I was like, okay, I'm done with that now. I don't need another, you know, and then Glow comes out. And I also think Glow is closer to a more realistic 80s. If my memory is to be trusted, I would say that Glow, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling on Netflix, is closer to the actual 80s than Stranger Things or Summer of 84. But it's not necessarily even about the close, how close it is or how accurate. I just never got engaged in it. And I totally get that of finding out something mid-watch isn't what you thought it was or finding out there's more to it or finding out that this is a director that you actually like and you didn't know this was one of their pieces and that you know bolstering it totally understand it's happened to me many times actually i think it happened to me with i believe i was watching blue steel before i knew it was a Catherine bigelow film i just was watching it for jamie lee curtis and then when i found out it was Catherine bigelow i was like i know that name why do i know that name And then I went back and it, and it was like, oh, Near Dark, one of my very favorite movies. Oh, my God. And then so that bolstered my opinion of Blue Steel. So I totally get that. And I think that's also totally fair. I, I do want to say, like, I don't think either of these movies are perfect. Like far, like, far from it. I just love them both. I don't know if they're necessarily good, but they are right up my alley. And to the point where when I saw Turbo Kid in theaters, I was like, this is my favorite movie of the year. I fucking love this movie. This movie's so great. Then, like, a month later, I saw Mad Max in theaters, Fury Road, and I was like, ooh, this is great, but I don't know if it's fa- as good as Turbo Kid. And then, like, later <laughs> in the year, I watched Turbo Kid alone at my house, and I was like, what am I talking about? Like, Mad Max is perfect. This is fun, but this isn't, like, you know, it's not the same thing. But I think that there's, like, a certain kind of energy that these movies both... I mean, I've only watched Summer of 84 by myself, but I think that there is a certain kind of energy that both of these have that with a crowd, especially Turbo Kid, with a crowd is just, like, the best experience. Like, I think that the crowd is probably better for Turbo Kid, and I think that's why, in my head, there's such fondness for Turbo Kid that also then bleeds over Summer of 84, that, like, I haven't liked Turbo Kid the second or third time as much as I did the first time, but, like, it was just, it was seriously one of the most fun movies I've ever seen in theater. Like, all the producers are into it, and, like, all the people who've never seen it before were into it, and it's just crazy and over the top, like, the kind of movie that plays well at midnight for a bunch of people who want to see this kind of movie. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is, like, they set out it seems i don't know if they set out to do it but they it's that rare instance where they've done like a modern instant midnight classic kind of situation here i mean it's probably not a classic yet but i mean it's on its way kind of thing like it struck a nerve for sure and like i could definitely see you know going yeah like dressing up like characters from this movie and cosplaying and going to like midnight screenings of this like absolutely i could see like a scene developing around uh this film and these filmmakers i would totally dress up as nero from there. I, it was great. 
You know how you know how few Halloween costumes there are for like a forty plus year old man. <laughs> really, I'm thinking of going as old man Logan. This yeah, year. Like, like that's wait. where it's gone to. <laughs> but I'm like, hey, Michael Irons, that's that could be a costume. All right, cool. Pre or post taking the eye patch off? Oh, either one. I think you'd go with the Nero helmet. Oh wait, actually, so this is not at all what we're talking about. But I never, I don't think I've ever told Mike this. But when I was maybe like six. I won a costume award at some... I don't know what party we were at. It was a bunch of kids. I don't remember. I, I wasn't there with friends. I don't know where I was. But I won a costume contest because I was... this. I don't know if it was my idea or my parents' idea, but I was both Clark Kent and Superman. Like, I was Clark Kent with a Superman outfit underneath... And I still think it's like the coolest. Like, it's, I don't. It wasn't my idea because I was a kid. But like, I still think that's the coolest idea. Like to have the Michael Ironside here, where you have the whole like metallic face and then the eye patch covering it up, and then like take it off. Like people won't know this movie. People know, won't know who you are. But like, it's cool as hell. You know what? Somebody might though. And then the True. one who does, they're that's, gonna that's give the you person you marry. You've got some respect. <laughs> they might think you're Terminator, but mm. they'd be close enough. Yes. Well, Michael Ironside was in Terminator Salvation, so. Yeah, that's right. He was on the submarine, <laughs> He <right>? was. <laughs> he was on that pointless submarine. So there's a lot. I felt like this movie was fighting me where Turbo Kid, I w- this is a big thing to me with movies is I feel like any movie should be some sort of a gift to the audience in some way. It, can, it doesn't mean it has to be happy, but some sort of gift that you unwrap and there's you know there's cool stuff to it and i i really like turbo kid for that like i feel like they were trying to give me a gift which was something that i hadn't really seen before and it was fun and charming and they put a lot of effort into it even if they didn't have a lot of money and that showed and so that won a lot of respect for me even even through its shortcomings like i can look at the shortcomings and go like you know what though every film has compromises and I can see these compromises, and that's fine. But for some reason, those few things with Summer of 84 just locked me out, and I could never get back into it. Turbo Kid, like, I loved it the first time, but I think it played better the second really? time. Like, I was, Yeah, like, I was able to decipher more about what happened to the planet, you know, the robot versus the uh, Turbo Men and all that war that was going on. It became a little more sort of clear the second time around. Oh, is that what happened? That's what I put together, that what he was reading in the comic books was printed as, like, wartime propaganda or something like that. Because uh, when Ironside reveals himself to be a robot at the end, I was like, oh, evil robot that shoots lasers from its mouth. Like, okay, I get it. There was a robot war, and we lost. Or no one won. Well, because, yeah, I think when you watch it the first time, when I watch it the first time, I'm like, oh, this kid's just super into comic books. But then he finds an actual turbo rider with the actual working blaster. You're like, oh, I guess this is real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the whole stuff with the reveal of Apple. At first, you're like, okay, she's just, maybe she's crazy because she's been wandering the wasteland somewhat like him. And then the reveal of her being a robot is just so great as well because it sort of explains her, like, instantly to a degree. Like, she's a friendship model. So, like, that's why she's, like, this manic pixie, like, kind of thing going on. And then just the imageries with, like, the masks and the, the gore. And I, I knew when he taped his hammer together with the other hammer that I loved this movie. And then when the other guy had hammered nunchucks at the end, I was like, fuck yeah. Like, this this just I'll, rewatchability, like, all day long for me. You know what it reminded me of? Have you guys ever seen Peter Jackson's first movie, uh, Bad Taste? No, I've seen... What was the one that he did with the, the monkey? Oh, that was Dead Alive, Dead Alive or That's Brain the first Dead. That's I've seen. I'm not the biggest fan of Dead Alive, but there is a whimsy to bad taste that 
was mirrored a lot in here, like where the bodies keep stacking up at the end. Oh my god, it's so good. Are you, are you talking about the literal bodies, like a half of a body on top of a body, and then yeah. the torso totem pole? <laughs> like there was something very Peter Jacksony about that from from that era of his filmmaking. This sort of gleeful descent into madness and gore that again you realize that they may be paying homage to that in some way in some sort of stylistic ways and again i was like okay that's pretty cool even though it's ridiculous it's stupid but there was something about it that just made me smile and i was just i was just having a good time throughout the movie and if a movie can let me have a good time i'm a big fan so (laughs) i just don't know what else nice to say about this movie because i'm just i really appreciated it for a low budget first time feature film like good job guys there is, so they, they announced two years ago, I don't know if there are any updates, they announced two years ago that there will be a sequel to Turbo Kid. I don't know what the status of that is. Turbo Man? Wasn't that the Arnold doll? <laughs> the Jingle All the Way crossover? Turbo Man. But they also put out, I don't know if either of you watched it, I forgot to watch it today, but there was, I saw it when it came out, I guess a couple years ago, that the band Limatos, who did the score, did this video called No Tomorrow, A Turbo Kid Tale, which is a prequel to the movie. It's about Apple. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah, I saw it once a while ago. I didn't rewatch it. I mean, it's not important to the story here, but it's more Apple, and more Apple is always a good thing, because Apple, especially with her gnome stick, is delightful. I also, you know, loved this time around that I don't think I ever noticed before, but that she rides into town like a cowboy on her unicorn shopping cart or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, that is just like, you know, the, the steed that she rides into town on is a unicorn, and I was like, that is just so wonderfully perfect. There is a sadness to Apple that... I absolutely loved. And it, it's not really harped upon, but just the idea that she is a friendship model and her friend died. Like she's looking to to be someone's friend. And now she's in this post-apocalypse where there just aren't that many people and it's hard for her to, to find a friend. There was something very melancholy about it. And I like I love little stuff like that. Like little stuff in the movie where it's like, we're not going to hit you over the head with this, but just the idea of this, when you think about it, it it's kind of sad. Even though her performance is very comedic and over the top it's still there's something incredibly sad about her story and about the kids story just how isolated both of them are so i think that also makes it work so much better when they're together i think they're just really good directors to a degree like especially with that character like the way that it's contrasted against the humans you know and there you know something's off about her and you know that there's nothing malevolent about her or anything like that and so I was instantly you know I instantly cared about her I was like oh no like I don't want her to be out and I know this is a dangerous place I don't want someone like this to be lost on their own so just instantly I was on her side it's so blood-soaked but like there is, like you said, the whimsy to it leaves it with this like endearing feeling at the end. And I, I just love her bluntness, where you know he talks about you know how he never he can never be Turbo Rider, like he's not brave enough or man enough or whatever. And she just agrees with him, and she's like, "But you could totally be Turbo Kid." And like that's just like you know that's exactly what he needed to hear in that moment. And he's just so empowered by her. And like I don't want to say that she's just there to make him better and she say but like she she is empowering i think like she is able to save the day a couple times yeah we find out that she starts to run low on energy right she's like losing on her zelda power. hearts and i love those zelda hearts so like there is sort of like the journey to save her at some point but ultimately she makes the sacrifice right to 
to save his life. So I love that twist on it too. Like it's sort of the hero's journey, but at the end, the hero doesn't make the sacrifice. It's the friend. And I think comparing her to Nikki in Summer of 84, it's a much stronger character. Like my problem with Summer of 84, like my biggest problem with that movie is that there are like three too many kids. Like, the movie should just be Davy and should be Woody, who's the big kid who gets killed at the end. We've really talked about in Summer of 84, there's four boys in their little gang. There is Davy, who's the star. There's Woody, who is a, a bigger kid. There's this kid, Eats, who is like a punk kid who seemingly wouldn't be friends with the rest of them in like other movies, but I like that he's friends with them here. He's like Rudy from Monster Squad. Yeah, I called him Mouth. He feels like the mouth of the crew to me. Well, I mean, his name is Eats, so that makes sense. And then they have the nerd Faraday, who, of course, you know, Faraday also from Lost. Faraday also, like, a famous scientist or some kind that, like, all of these are paying homage and, you know, reference to. But there's the four of them, and then there's the hot girl next door, Nikki, who's also Davy's former babysitter. And, you know, we talked a lot of bit about this on High School Summer Party. I don't want to go too much into it, but I do want to talk about it with the both of you. It feels like there's no real purpose... For Nikki in the movie, for Eats in the movie, and for Faraday in the movie. Like, at the end of the movie, when after the town knows the cop that Mackie is the killer, right, and the town is sort of on red alert, and then we find out in the creepiest scene of the entire movie that he's been hiding in the attic, and it's like, holy shit, like, he's just there to take Davy. It becomes, it's just Davy and it's just Woody, and, like, that's it. I feel like that could have been the whole movie. Like, everybody else is there just for, like, more interactions and more walkie-talkie stuff and you know nikki shows up at the end to help them but like none of them are really necessary to the story and i feel like they should have been given more to do or been cut completely and i think comparing apple to nikki apple has purpose and reason and the fact that there's just two of them as opposed to five is a lot tighter and allows you to develop those characters more and you can empathize with them as opposed to like oh what's this one oh his parents voted for or want to vote for reagan and bush and they yell at each other like okay cool like he's that stereotype or like oh this this kid's a nerd okay her parents are getting divorced like okay but like, that's like all we know and i feel like there's just too much going on in that regard and i wish that they sort of were able to condense or compact or just cut some of it to make us care more about two or three of them yeah i 100 percent agree she has so much non-purpose that she becomes problematic almost to where i'm like why why is she is she here just so she can tell the audience that she's attracted to him and that's weird like this is all weird i it's all it was it was weird you guys like it was just weird <laughs> yeah it's like to me it was sort of like the girl next door fantasy idea but like super blown out of proportion yeah like, absolutely to the idea where i i thought he was delusional yeah at one point and imagining it was happening and when it was actually happening i was like okay like i don't i don't i don't get that <laughs> I don't get that at all. So one thing that I was talking to Brian and Alex about, and they hadn't seen any of these movies, but, like, it's the same kind of thing that, like, The Babysitter did, which I love. Did any of you see The Babysitter, that Mick G movie that was a Netflix movie last year? Mm-hmm. I like that more, I think. I did. I can't believe I'm saying I like the Mick G movie more, but I think I like the Mick G movie a little more. It's so weird and good. And, like, that movie and, like, The House of the Devil and, like, 
Better Watch Out, which is a Christmas movie, like sort of like Home Alone, but like graphic for adults, kind of. All of those have the same kind of like hot babysitter. I mean, House of the Devil is a little bit different, but like especially the babysitter and Better Watch Out have like the hot babysitter that the younger sort of nerdier main character is attracted to. But in those movies, there's like a reason for it. Like the babysitter, she's doing what she's doing for a very specific reason that I won't spoil here. Like there's a reason, like they're taking that hot girl next door, the older friend, the babysitter, the unattainable dream girl, and twisting it. And the same thing with Better Watch Out. Like it's like this like fucked up version of like, what the kid thinks or what he thinks he like earns or deserves or here it's just like oh that's the hot girl next door and she's just in this movie to tell my friends he's more of a man than any of you will ever be or any jerk-offs are or whatever and like they all think I'm cool now but they already thought he was cool you know what I mean it's just like I don't know like there doesn't feel like there's a reason for her at all other than like hey we need a girl in this movie and like let's make her hot right and whose family's getting divorced ah her family because the divorce was on the rise in the 80s her arc was so it's not an arc but her placement in this story was so weird and that you know like i also thought for a moment like wait is he imagining this which played into his conspiracy theories things which never panned out that i thought for a minute once i was like no he's not imagining it oh is she the killer why is she so strange? Oh, so one thing, not to interrupt you, but one thing that Brian or Alex, one of them, I think Alex said on the High School Summer Party that I didn't even think about was she thought she was being positioned as the accomplice to the cop, that she was always in the right place at the right time and, like, was luring them. And, like, how cool would it have been as a reveal that she's just up there, like, to help them in the end, but she actually just helps them, like, fall into his trap in the basement when they go to find him. You know what I mean? Like, but she's just there innocuous like she's just there like oh hey guys let me help like i have nothing else to do in this movie i'm here now yeah it was just another one of those things that i'm like okay but but why 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 yeah i definitely feel like there's way too many characters in this way too many kids i think you need you need the main kid and i think he needs a there needs to be three of them you think so yeah at least i think what you do is you take nikki and you make her their age and just be like the girl that hangs out with them instead of them being so like Like horny and shit all the time yeah kind of like it i guess i was getting a little bit of that kind of stephen king you know stranger things obviously vibe from this so i'd like that dynamic more because we see it less and i think i was getting the fatigue also of just like all this trash talk i was just i just don't i just can't take all the trash talk so like having her presence be a little more of an equal definitely would have you know leveled things out for me or i mean have her taking part in the trash talk at least it would have been well this is something i haven't seen before you know because the movie also even pays special respect that like once he starts once davy starts hanging out with nikki he's like hey guys let's not talk about her like that even though a couple scenes before he was lusting over her just like the rest of them they were peeping on her like peeping toms like (laughs) like (laughs) And he's even saying, like, you know, please turn around, please turn around. And then, like, there's the line, and, like, this doesn't make me like the movie any less, because I already knew all this stuff was, like, maybe problematic or maybe just kind of icky and gross. But there's that line, like, when when she comes over at... 1230 in the morning or whatever because she sees that he's up or whatever and wants to confront him about this stuff she says you have a better view of my room than i thought and he says real quick he's like oh i've never seen you naked and she just says too bad i've got a great body i'm like what what like yeah we already know she's the cool hot neighbor like she doesn't have to say that she's my biggest problem with this movie the more i talk about it is that like she just has no purpose and especially when you watch it back to back with apple even if apple's not really like a girl like if apple's just a robot but she's still like a female character like they can do female characters well it's just that they didn't 
And I don't know if it's because they're like, oh, it's a horror movie, like stereotypes, blah, blah, blah. But like, just do better. Be better. I mean, yeah. I mean, you had Apple smiling her face off, laughing out loud, bashing someone's brain in with a garden gnome, you know? Like, she's a very strong, fun, empowered character who's like part of the team. And here, Nikki is just to be objectified, which is backward. Just because it's a nostalgia piece, it's tough. Like, I feel like because there aren't a lot of women part of the gang in those 80s movies, like, you look at those 80s movies, well, Goonies is probably the best example because there are girls in that gang. Maybe when you're watching those movies and you're trying to emulate that, this is what happens. Like, you're like, okay, this is the role they're going to play because it's the only one I really know as opposed to sort of saying, no, like, let's, let's change that and, like, let's try and make it more realistic or, like, not even. Like, let's just use the 80s as a backdrop and have them act like, you know, kids today would. Just everyone would be inclusive. I take a little bit of umbrage with that because, like, even Australia had BMX bandits in the 80s where Nicole Kidman was a major part of the gang. It was a big part of the exploitation movement in the 70s and 80s. And that director has gone on to do quite a few things, but I saw it on HBO once a long time ago. So, But she was a major part of the gang in there. If you look at something like Cloak and Dagger, it was only a two-kid show, really. And it wasn't a, a girlfriend thing because they were just two kids. And so, I mean, I think it's possible. And I think there's a lot of stuff from the 80s that does have stuff they could pull from. This just feels lazy. Like, they're like, oh, the 80s, bunch of guys running around. And like, there's no excuse for that now. Even if you're paying homage or diving deep into the nostalgia, I think you have a responsibility to look at it and go, okay, maybe this is what media was portraying at the time, even though that's not 100% true. But even if it was going, yeah, but that was wrong. Like it was inaccurate and it it's not something we need to stick to now unless there's some sort of overreaching metaphor or overreaching thing you're trying to comment on, which I don't feel like this film really was. Yeah, you know what I was getting a feel of it. This movie made me want to rewatch Super Eight of all the mm. things because oh, yeah. that's something I, I really sort of got. What I not that I felt this was going for, but that's sort of more my flavor. Like that, I really get the vibe of, and I'm down with. High five to Mike. I agree with that. <laughs> it's a real good suggestion. Here's the other problem. Look, if you look at Turbo Kid, there are a lot of things in there you can go, remember that scene when? So you can go through and you can be like, remember that scene where they all had to fight their way out of the drained swimming pool? Remember the scene where she punches him in the throat and it's hilarious? Oh, dude, remember the scene where they tie that guy's intestines to the exercise bike? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, you've got all this stuff and there's nothing in Summer of 84 that I'm like, remember that scene when? There is nothing in there that that makes me go back to it and say, oh, that was really clever or, oh, that was really... The more I talk about it, I think the angrier I get. So I apologize for that, but... Oh, no, 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 it's fine. Like, that's that's kind of what the point is, I guess. <laughs> I just... I love movies where you can go, remember that scene? And Turbo Kid is just littered with those. I do wonder if that's like, you know, three people who have a, literally a lifetime full of ideas that they're shoving into a movie and then... Not that they're rushing to do another movie three years later, but it's obviously bigger budget maybe there's more studio involvement or something and they can't or i don't know like that maybe they used up all their torso stacking on torsos ideas in the first movie. you know what i mean like i wonder if they just shot their proverbial wad in the first movie and didn't have enough moments or scenes 
it's like a wildly different genre too and like it feels like the constant thread throughout is the 80s and not necessarily the genre or the type of movie right well i mean that's not fair because if you look at rear window you can say remember that scene when a lot in rear window depending on the genre the movie should still have those scenes sure, that, yeah, that yeah. draw you in and it didn't have it as much i just feel like there's too much going on in this movie to be quite honest with you it gets to a point to me where it feels like i'm supposed to be picking out easter eggs you know where it's like oh, oh he's you know he's wearing this shirt or that oh look it's Polybius in the arcade. Oh, how funny is that? Oh, there is a Turbo Kid doll in Summer of 84. Exactly, you know, <laughs> and, and that grains on me because it starts to detract from the actual story that's supposed to be taking place, you know, when, when we're supposed to be concerned with the murderer and the kids are arguing between gremlins or Ewoks, and it's like, dude, if this was the only conversation about shit like this they had, fine, but, like, it's constant throughout the whole movie. But the counterpoint to that, I think, is that, like, this is Davy's movie. The other kids are just like, we're just doing this because, like, we're bored, you know what I mean? Like, so like, if they're staking out, they're going to be arguing about things. You know what I mean? Like, it feels, that doesn't bother me. It feels, it feels more real. See, for me, it just feels like it detracts from the actual story going on. Like, I'm getting distracted. Like, that's all it's doing for me, personally. Like, I can understand it, like, just sort of rolling with it and just having, like, a laugh or a chuckle at reference or something. But I'm just trying to concentrate on on the movie, and it feels like the collective is saying, shove this in, shove that in, you know, pack it up. So it's like, there's more than enough here for one movie. I feel like they should have just spread it out and taken a little more time and relaxed a little bit. Well, and I think more to your point, have them have an argument argument about gremlins versus Ewoks, but then what does that argument have to do with anything? How does it come back? How does it say something about character? Like, where where is it all going so it's not just, you like Star Wars and gremlins, here's Star Wars and gremlins. It needs to be character-defining in some way, which, you know, like the comic books in Turbo Kid. Like, that was a big part of his character. He's trying to live up to something. So there was, you know, there, there was something plot-wise going on, something character-wise going on. But in here, in Summer of 84, it's just just like you remember Star Wars, right? And I think that just like falls into my bigger criticism. Like there's just not enough for all these characters to do. And so they're trying to give them things to do. And the things to do is just to talk about 80s stuff, which I don't mind, but I just wish, like, I don't mind that it's not, it's, it doesn't pay off, but I just wish that they had more to do, if that makes sense. Like, I think we're, I think we're critical about the same things, but for different reasons. Like it doesn't bother me. It just, I wish that there was either fewer characters or more actions that needed other than just like, hey, let's stake out this garage and see what's going on. What was the the best friend's name? The big guy is Woody. Woody. So Woody has this interesting side story that I wanted to see more of, but they never really dove into where he is the main support for his mother, right? His mother, I I couldn't, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I can't remember. I think she has maybe an alcohol problem. I got the sense that she was divorced and she just was not taking it very well. Okay. She's battling something and he feels the responsibility to be there. And like, for me, it would have been great if you did only have these two friends or maybe these were the two best friends and then you had this third outlier whatever and then the only way to cheer him up or to bring him back to you know talking about what they needed to talk about or whatever is then yeah then you talk about star wars or gremlins or or you get him involved in like okay well who's better and why gremlins or ewoks or who's worse you know or whatever it just feels so unmotivated. And I mean, even in Stranger Things, if you look at Stranger Things, all of the stuff with D&D played into the plot and played into the characters and how things were going to unfold in a way that none of this did. And it just existed as a reference. So for me, it's not so much, and it doesn't even, not everything has to have a purpose necessarily. But when you're dealing with just references being thrown at you all the time, I, I agree with Mike, it becomes sort of its own level of exhausting. I just don't mind the references. 
sentences. There's a lot in this movie that I'm like, oh yeah, I get why that would bother people. The same thing in Ready Player One, where I'm like, oh, I get why you both of you would hate that movie, but at the same time, I'm just like, oh, I like that. I don't, I can't, I can't define why. I can't articulate why. I also can't articulate why I loved Ready Player One, the book, and couldn't stand Armada, his follow-up book, unless it's just like more of the same thing. Or I was bothered by the fact that like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if like Ender's Game was a book? Oh wait, it is a book. But wait, this is this plot is Ender's Game too. Like I, don't, like, I just, I don't know why certain things work for me and others don't. I wish that there was certain things that were better that, you know, I've already talked about, but on the whole, it just sort of clicks for me. I agree that we are sort of drowning in nostalgia, and I think the popularity of Stranger Things has only caused more of this to exist, or at least become as popular as it does, or at least has put a name to it. Like, Mike, we just talked about when we recorded Mandy with Larson for Cage Club. You know, that's another movie set in 82, 83, 84, whatever, in the Shadow Mountains, but it also doesn't really feel like it's an 80s movie. Like, the 80s nostalgia in that is there for a reason. It exists for metal reasons and character building reasons and just overall, like, vibes and aesthetics. Like, here, I can't help but think, Mike, that, that clip I sent you of Demi Adijuibe doing that, like, remember this, remember that, remember this, remember that, like, that song, <laughs> like, his, his trailer for Ready Player One. Like, I get why this could feel like that to some people. To go back into me not blaming the movie as much, like I just recently watched Mandy as well, and I enjoyed it. I really did. I wanted it to be more complicated than it was. It's a very simple movie. Yeah, it's a straight up revenge story, and 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 I enjoyed it. But man, I am so overwhelmed with '80s nostalgia that when some of that soundtrack kicked in, I was like, oh god, <sighs> okay. But the movie won me back again and again and again. So it's not just this movie that has the ability to to wear me down with this stuff. Even with Mandy, a film that I think is, in a lot of respects, exquisite. Like, it's really beautifully made. There were moments where I'm like, oh, my God, 80s. Oh, no more. Yeah, I think this movie, like, I feel like it had a lot of great potential when I started it. And that it just didn't really live up to it for me because it set itself up in my eyes to go bigger places. Like, I was, again, I mean, I know I harp on this a couple of times, but, like, I was just a little upset that it settled to be on a rear window story. I mean, I love, those are some of my favorite movies. I love Fright Night to Death. Like, it's one of my top five horror movies I watch every October. But watching Turbo Kid and knowing what they're capable of and then seeing this, like, the giant step that they took production-wise and the money that they had and the ideas and everything, I was just, I couldn't help but feel just a little let down after watching it. Even though it zigged when I thought it was going to zag at certain times, maybe it just didn't zag enough for me. I really just had this idea in my head that it could be more so you know I give it a lot of credit for what it pulled off but just ultimately I I saw something more that was possible and I guess it just didn't deliver it all for me well here's what I'll say I will definitely watch whatever they do next yeah oh yeah so like you can have a misstep you can have you know you can have an outright failure at times but like I really like Turbo Kid so I'm still like okay I'm interested show me what you got this one didn't work for me but Maybe the next one really will. This was sort of how you came down uh, with Fede Alvarez as well, I believe, where you were down with Evil Dead, not so much with Don't Breathe, but you're like, yeah, bring it on. Like, you know, it's a very interesting guy. I want to see what he's up to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely don't want to ever watch Don't Breathe again, but... I definitely want to see his next movie, which I'm going to see for another podcast. I'm going to be on <laughs> Girl in the Spider's Web. Claire Foy. 
So and and he's the main reason I'm excited about that, honestly, because like I really love the original Norwegian girl with the dragon tattoo, but I haven't liked anything since then. But I'm interested in what Fide does with that. One thing I want to talk about before we wrap up, because we haven't really talked about him much at all, is how I think maybe maybe I'm alone. I don't know how good Rich Summer is as Mackie as the cop killer, not cop killer, but cop and killer in Summer of '84. Like I think people know him mostly from his role as Harry on Mad Men, probably. I know him from glow and that's it yes as Alison Brie's husband on glow yeah I knew him from Mad Men yeah I knew him first as he's a guest once a year or so on the Never Not Funny podcast, which I love. And so he's been on there and I knew him because he's obviously he's in the L.A. kind of comedy-ish scene and, you know, in that world. And I think they just know him from those shows. But I knew him just as a guy. And I, I love, like, he's such an affable dude on the podcast. And he's sort of like a, I mean, I've only seen the first couple seasons of Mad Men. But, like, he's kind of like a more meek character, especially in comparison to, like, strong-willed guys like Don Draper and everything like that. And I don't know if that changes. Maybe it does. No spoilers. But uh, to see him here as that same kind of like, oh, hey, like, you know, I, I'll give ice pops or whatever to the kids. And then just, you know, it's it's almost like the guest in a way, right? Where like uh, Dan Stevens will say something and it'll seem like he's just like this genuinely good dude. And then he'll just like stare off into the distance. And we hear that like yes. playing on the guitar. It's like, oh, I don't know what is going on with this guy, but I do not want to be alone with him. Like, it's that kind of thing, I think. He's so perfectly fits that neighbor next door, but you can also see why he's so messed up. I think his ability to hide the creepiness under that exterior of just affability and likability is great. Well, okay, first, don't don't bring the guest into this. I'm going to bring the guest into it. Second thing is, I think the cast overall in this is very good. I think I think everybody does a good job with what they're given and I think he did a very good job. The one scene that does stick out to me. Okay, you know here's a here's a remember this scene? I said there were none. There's one that I actually liked was and it's all on account of his performance. It's after the kid has given all of the evidence to the parents and they've told him you you know you need to apologize and this is terrible and he's stuck at home and then the cop killer goes to his house when he's home alone. The phone and, calls. Yeah. Yeah, and makes the phone call. That scene, like, that could have been the turning point where you go, oh, shit, no, it really, he really is the killer. But we all had no doubts that he was the killer at that point. So, but the performance is really good. Like, he is very quietly threatening without being threatening. You know what I mean? Exactly. He's so, like, just inviting, too, and cheerful when it's very scary when <laughs> when you know, like, he's not like that but uh yeah i really like this guy i like this actor we don't really ever get a motive though i like when they break into his room and it's like his his childhood room and then we find out that his family pictures are actually the victims pictures like that was really cool and creepy so what's what's cool about that which obviously you wouldn't notice the first time around but when davy first like the first scene of the movie where he goes into the house right and he is getting the money for his newspaper route and he says he, he's commenting on the pictures he's like oh you got a big family and he's like oh yeah i guess i do and then he's like just you, you want to make sure you don't live too close to them but what i also loved about that is that when the ginger the Dewey or Davy or not Davy, whatever, Dusty or whatever, the kid who's on the milk carton, right? And he see like 
Davy sees him in the house, Mackie refers to him as his nephew. And I'm like, oh, like he's in a weird sort of messed up serial killer way, like thinks of these people as his family. And I think that adds an extra layer of creepiness to the performance and to the character. Like he commented like, oh yeah, like these are all my family. Ha ha ha. But like it is like, that's the creepiest thing. This character is super creepy. I think he's creepy. I can't remember. Was it Ted Bun? Whoever was the clown the serial killer? John Wayne Gacy? John Wayne Gacy. Like, the, people were like, yeah, he's fun and nice and blah, 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 blah. You never would have imagined, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's the... <laughs> George Carlin had a great bit about that, where it's like, it's the quiet ones you gotta watch. Well, while you're watching a quiet one, a noisy one will kill you. But it's, like, really good. Like, it feels like that character was thought out. It might be just on the part of the actor. I don't know. Like, you know, comparing him to our last episode of Cinemakers that you were on, Nick, comparing him to the creepy guy in Don't Breathe, who just feels like a caricature of a caricature of just like this war torn like this ptsd war hero or whatever who like wants to have a baby like it just that feels like a bunch of just generics where here there's nuance that is probably a lot to do with rich summer but also i think it's not entirely him like i think that he's just the most interesting thing here by far Yes, I would agree with that. I think he is the most interesting thing about this film. I think there were a lot of things that were almost interesting, but he is actually interesting. And I think a lot of the interesting sort of shots, and even if it doesn't have, like, remember that scene, like, I think there's a lot of remember that moment that all revolve around him, like I talked about with the attic door coming down, or when you find out that this is, like, a recreation, maybe, of his childhood home, all the way down to his, like, final speech in the woods about, like, how he's not going to kill him now because he wants David to live a life in fear, looking over his shoulder, waiting for that day where he might show up. That's super menacing. And I think that the memorable things about this are just how creepy... I mean, he's kind of a generic, in a way type of killer like the guy next door right like in, a, in the same way that Nikki is a generic girl next door he's kind of the you know the neighbor next door or whatever but it's all in a way that is put together in a very creepy effective way what really helps that end when he explodes is just how contained he is throughout the entire movie like one of my favorite moments that he has is when the dad makes the kids go over and tell him what they've been up to and for a second it looks like he might know that he's been caught but then he kind of like laughs it off and accepts it and catches the dad off guard and i'm like wow that is great deflection like he is sort of like a master or that scene to me came across like almost perfectly tonally and everything because like it was um he sort of like outwitted them in a way by accepting this and not getting pissed off because obviously like you know you would just imagine the neighbor would get mad for playing in his yard and screwing up his plans so that for me was a great little character moment that he had that made me say all right like he's more devious than i gave him credit for so where did that come from at the end like thematically in terms of storytelling like i'm wondering what part of him is a is about living a life of fear and i mean i guess it maybe it's just about punishment for davy it is very threatening, and I agree, like, he's been so, you know, cold and contained this whole time, so seeing him explode was very interesting. The actor did a great job, but I'm still like, okay, what part of this fits into the rest of his character? And I just don't know. Like, I don't I don't know why that type of punishment, why that occurred to him. I don't know if this is the right answer, but I think we get an answer early in the movie that we I think we approach this city this town this series of killings at an at a unique time because we hear on a news broadcast that this is that the the Kate May Slayer has sent a note to police that he's killed 13 boys it feels like in this world at this time Mackie is getting bored 
that he's like ostensibly I and mean, this is me reading into it a little bit but like it feels to me that he's thinking like I can kill as many kids as I want and get away with it all. I I need to start like toying with the police, otherwise it's gonna go on forever, and that's kind of boring to me. And so I feel like it's not a major part of the story, but we hear, and the reason that they all hear about it, the kids hear about it, and they sort of you know are like Mackie's the killer, is because they say on the news like they got a note from the police or the police got a note or whatever. And so I feel like it's kind of an amplification of that that he finally is able to take this next step and be like, oh, here's the next part of my grand plan that I'm going to be, you know, sort of like Seven or sort of like Zodiac, where I'm going to be like this killer who, like, toys with the cops. Like, I'm going to have a good run like this. And, you know, if the cops catch me, that's one thing. But I think there's, like, an annoyance that this, like, 14-year-old kid next door figured it out immediately. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's where the rage comes from. That, like, in this serial killer's head, and this is, again, me reading way too far into it, but in the serial killer's head, he's like, oh, I have this whole grand plan. Like, this is Act 2. And for it to be undone so easily and so quickly by, like, the snot-nosed kid next door, he ruined everything. You know what I mean? I feel like that's maybe where it comes from. Well, I think you wrote a better script just then in dealing with that character. But I think that's all in here. I think. I think that helps explain why he might be so pissed at the neighbor, but I'm still a little confused about why he might have decided to start killing. I guess I could go along with the boredom thing, but, but like, I'm trying to connect, okay, why is he only killing... Wait, why start killing in the first place? Well, yeah, like, why is he killing teenage boys only? Why is he a police officer? Like, are these things sort of factoring in? Can I decipher anything from it? And ultimately, I didn't really, I wasn't able to put anything together close to what you did for his character, because I think ultimately it's not from his perspective. Right. from the kid's point of view. But it would have been nice if while they were, you know, in that room that we got, like, maybe some more of a hint as to what happened. Like, maybe he's like, it's fine if he's a Norman Bates and we found his mom's, you know, decrepit corpse or something fine something um so i was a little you know upset we didn't we didn't get some kind of answer was there an answer to like i I feel like i may have missed it because a lot happened all right in a row as soon as they got into his back room but they get into his room and it's everything's old and dusty and it looks like it's been there forever and then i think davy says something like well he must have you know this must have been walled off since like the 50s and then nikki says well these houses weren't built like 10 years ago I, I i don't understand what happened with that room the way that i took it and the movie doesn't tell you i think it's a recreation of his childhood bedroom for what oh. reason i don't know but okay. i think there's a little bit and again we don't know the why but early in the movie, when Davy goes into his house to collect the money, and he's talking about a kid, you know, they're talking about basically being a kid in the summer, and about doing the paper route and everything, and he says to Davy, 15, it's the perfect age, I wish I could just freeze it for you. The movie's not from his perspective, so I don't think we're ever going to get, like, full answers, but it feels to me that, like, something happened, like, it feels like almost he was robbed of a childhood. He's now obsessed with maybe youth, or preventing other kids from having a childhood. Like, I don't know, I don't mind that we don't get, like, the why of the killer, because I think sometimes not knowing is scarier. That, like, the the reason this is scary is because it could be the guy next door that you've known since before you were born, that he's the killer who's been killing all these, like, ruining lives and ruining families right. and stuff. And I think that something happened to him that between that sort of casual throwaway line, like, oh, it's a perfect age, and he sort of seems, like, resentful and jealous at the same time. And again, 
again, that might just be the, the performance by Rich Summer. But between that and, like, the weirdness of the bedroom and the basement and all sorts of stuff, and, like, you know, his, his wanting to watch the kids play around outside and giving them, like, ice pops, like, something happened to him that he was, he lost a childhood. And maybe, I mean, maybe he was already a sociopath before that, who knows? But I don't mind that we don't have an explicit, like, oh, you know, his mother raped him when she, blah, 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 blah. You're, like, I, I, don't, I don't mind that. I think there's enough context clues to infer something messed up happened to him when he was a kid, and now he's dealing with it in this terrible, terrible way. Yeah, I also don't mind not having all the answers. I, I guess that that is something I should say up front. I think there are more clues in here than I give it credit for, but I also, this is not a film I'll ever watch again, so I won't right. pick up on yeah. most of them. So. And I mean, I only picked up on a lot of these things the second time around, because like, I liked it so much the first time, and that's why I was like, I want to talk about this movie, and I watched it again for this. I think watching it again, if <laughs> unless you hate it, like, I think, <laughs> I, I really wonder, Mike, if, if, since Turbo Kid played better for you the second time, I wonder if this movie would play better because i feel like you've already noticed and articulated the cracks you know what i mean like you, you sort of know where it, it falls short i would think although i don't know and also it doesn't matter to me one way or the other because everybody can like what they like but i, I feel like you might enjoy this more the second time around because i think there are things it's not as articulated as it should be or could be or whatever but there's things here that do pay off that are kind of cool the second time around if you're able to get by the 80s over nostalgia of it all yeah well i mean i'll tell you what like i'm not as against this as as nick is like i would actually give this one a second chance because now i actually know what to focus on like that to me is my whole issue with this is like it's there like everything's there that needs to be but there's a lot more that doesn't really need to be there and if they just stripped it down more and played it a little tighter i think this movie really would have rocked hard like instead of just kind of the you know like okay for me but like that that's just ultimately where i come down to i'm like so when i do if i ever do rewatch this and it's not outside the realm of possibilities like that's it i would just be able i know what to block out i know what to focus on and i know now what i want to watch for you know what i'm saying and i have a certain i know what's going to happen so i have an expectation and i can just see if i can enjoy it on that level and yeah it's possible so we'll see the thing to me is it's like it is the experience of it was so unpleasant that even these little things that i could pick up i would rather go watch zodiac if i'm gonna watch something about an interesting serial killer play out you know what i mean like there are other films i can go to oh well yeah i mean so would i it's not like i would ever pick this over zodiac like i think this is fun right Zodiac is no. like a goddamn masterpiece. Like Zodiac's like a perfect movie. I actually have a question for you, though. Would you rather rewatch Summer of 84 or Don't Breathe? Oh, Don't Breathe. Really? Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah, they're both upsetting in different ways. <laughs> I prefer the craft of Don't Breathe, and I prefer Jane Levy's performance. Like, I like watching Jane Levy act. I think she's tremendous. And so, like, this also, it had Rich Summer, and, and he's good, but I think what Jane Levy does in that movie is is much more fascinating to watch. For me. I like that. That's fair. Yeah. But I would prefer to watch neither. <laughs> watch something new. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that, that I didn't notice, but I should have noticed maybe, and Mike, you definitely should have noticed. I don't know if you did or not, but when... Apple's giving the kid cereal. Cereal is Soleil Vert, which is Soylent Green in French. Oh, oh my God. That's amazing. A uh, little reference of sorts there. Foodie Films, a little mm -hmm. boyfriend material yeah. crossover. And the only other thing that I have in, my, in terms of trivia from Turbo Kid, the script said that it was like this desert wasteland, right? And then when they were filming... It was, like, drizzly and rainy the entire time, so, like, okay, cool, acid rain, and so they tinted all the puddles and stuff green, because that wasn't supposed to be there, it was supposed to be, like, this wasteland, and then, you know, Mother Nature was like, no, well, you know, good luck, so. That's funny! I, I really love that. 
I loved it because they popped, the characters popped so much out of the background, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's just that really nice sort of, like, contrast. So that was cool to me. That's the same thing that happened on Fury Road. Like, they were supposed to film in Australia, but then... Oh, and there were storms? Yeah, there were just storms, and it it was, like, beautifully lush green, so they shot it in Africa. Instead, (laughs) apparently Australia, climate change. One thing that I really liked about the end of Turbo Kid that... You know, I, I was reminded when I rewatched the first Avengers uh, before Infinity War came out this year was the same thing happens like when Tony is fighting Thor in the woods and oh. Thor hits him <laughs> with a lightning bolt and it supercharges mm-hmm. his suit to 400 percent. Like at the mm-hmm. end of this movie, when Michael Ironside is, you know, doing his robot electric thing and he supercharges Turbo Kid's blaster and then he, you know, it's he falls victim to it. You know what I mean? So uh, I thought that was kind of cool. Not necessarily a reference to Avengers, but the same kind of thing as Avengers. That Turbo Blaster looked a hell of a lot like a power glove to me from sure the old did. Nintendo days. He's a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the what did we talk about the wizard? We talked about the wizard recently, Mike. Was that on a that might have been on a Cage Club Revisited? Was that about Mandy? Oh no, but it uh, Firebirds. <laughs> Firebirds, mm-hmm. right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did not talk about the cowboy ripping a dude's chin off and then jamming it into his eyes to kill him. We sure didn't. <laughs> that was pretty brutal. Like I forget how bloody Turbo Kid is until the blood kicks in. It's like, oh, right, like this is like Japanese blood. You know what I mean? Like it's like the, it's the geysers. Have you guys ever seen Ricky Ho? No. No, but that's Edgar Wright's favorite movie, I think. Is it? Yeah. Because I, I seen it once or twice, and it is a super extreme like prison karate movie that is just like this. Like it really pushes the gore factor. Like guys are choking each other with their intestines like every third scene. It's it's extreme, but I was definitely getting that, that vibe from this. It's always weird for me when it's mixed with humor, which is why it draws me back to Peter Jackson and his early work, that he was always juggling those two things, but the amount of gore reminded me of Takashi Miike film. Audition? No. One of my favorite films, Itchy though. Itchy the Killer? Itchy the Killer, yeah. He's only got a hundred movies. How could you not remember the title of it? <laughs> I know. He's done a hundred movies, of which I like two. But yeah, the, the gore in that, which was just so over the top, but it in much more like in a much more disturbing way. That was the I guess the weird thing about Turbo Kid is it's like it felt cartoony even when it got, you know, horribly gory and bloody. It still felt cartoony. Whereas obviously Miyake's films don't. They they feel disturbing and awful. Yeah. But in a good way. But in a good way. <laughs> a good disturbing and awful. Yeah. In an entertaining way, at yeah. least. Yeah. <laughs> if you've never seen Audition, prepare yourself, but then go well, see don't, Audition. Yeah, don't read anything about Audition. Just see Audition. Yes, exactly. If you like horror movies. If you don't like horror movies, don't see Audition. Or if you want to like sell somebody on a bill of goods and pretend like it's a romance movie, then you know really have them hate you by the second half. You can do that, too. Do you want to see a romantic comedy about a guy who makes girls audition for him? You're going to love Audition. I think that's just about everything I have about these two movies. Again, I'll remind everyone to check out the High School Slumber Party episode where we went real deep into Summer of 84 exclusively. But, Nick, do you have anything else to say about either of these movies before we wrap up on this episode of Cinemakers? I just really want to, you know, state again how much I I adore something like Turbo Kid with all of its flaws. Even even with all of its flaws, I still really had a good time watching that movie. Were there things that could have been done better? Sure. But man, I just, my heart felt good. I loved watching all of the actors. I'm always happy to see Michael Ironside in anything, no matter how bad it may be. I think Michael Ironside makes it better. And then, you know, I, I just couldn't crack the code to get into summer of 84 i tried and it just it wasn't it was not for me well i appreciate the effort mike any other thoughts about either of these movies 
or the RKSS Collective. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm super excited to see what this collective comes up with next, or if they split up and go off and make films out on their own. Like, I'm just, yeah, I'm going to start tracking these people and seeing what they're up to. I love Turbo Kid. I mean, I hope they get that sequel out, keep going, make it a series, whatever. I don't know. It seems like it would be a good TV show in the vein of, like, what they tried to do with Evil Dead or something. It can kind of, it's along the same sort of genre, I feel. So whatever you're going to do with Turbo Kid, I love I love it all. I want some more. Summer of 84, um, you know, I'm a little more, uh, I'm sort of more lukewarm on. It just didn't, I just... You know, I just didn't feel like it reached its full potential. I still feel like there's a good movie in there, and I think other people will probably enjoy it, like, a lot more than I did. Like I me! Think, yeah, <laughs> like Joey. Like, I definitely don't hate it. Like, I think, like, people should definitely give it a chance. Try and at least turn it on, try and get through that first act. If it's for you, keep going. If not, don't worry, turn it off. Go watch Rear Window, go watch Fright Night, go watch one of the other hundreds of movies with the same sort of plot. Um, what does it for 1984 is sort of like the minutiae I feel is what they're going for. And for me, that's just sort of what distracted me. But I can understand that being entertaining for a lot of people. It's just not for me. Yeah, so I give it credit for what it tried to do. But um, for me, I'm more down with Turbo Kid all the time. Cool. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being on this episode. You'll be on eventually for a Catherine Bigelow run, if not a couple other different directors, so that we look forward to that. But the important thing I want to say, you know, we, we, th- we sort of a little bit teased it at the top. The next director we're doing is, drumroll please, Amy Heckerling. So we're going to start with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which, you know, Mike, we might have talked about, God, three and a half years ago almost. Jesus Christ. Holy moly. We're starting to also break our one rule of Cinemakers, which is, like, we're only doing modern auteurs, so we're getting a little out of that box. 82's not crazy. I mean, it's still, you know... No, but when we started, we were like, no one after... It's like 1990 was like cut yeah. yeah, so like, now we're we're opening it up to way more possibilities. Yeah, so we're doing Amy Hackling with Cara Gale O'Regan of the Wistful Thinking podcast, so that'll be exciting. She's also been on Keanu Club and Watch a Throne and a bunch of other things that we do, so we're going to be going through, I think it's like nine or ten episodes. That'll be out sometime. I think we'll start putting that out later this year, probably. Don't know how to... Don't have an exact date yet. Um, but then starting in January, Mike and I have two new podcasts that we're following up the Charlie Theron podcast with, which we will announce in just about two weeks here on the Cage Club Podcast Network. So go to cageclub.me to check that out. And also, while you're poking around, go check out Real Bad. So, Nick, this would be... Oh, this is the week that Halloween 3 comes out. So four days ago, you guys covered Halloween 3 over on your podcast, which Mike and I talked about with Dan Cologne on Third Time's a Charm. Do you remember... I, I think I, I don't mean to put your feet to the fire and quiz you here. What's the movie coming out Monday, so the 22nd on Real Bad? Because you started the month off with Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, and then we just did, was Ash Receivable Dead the series, which was a very great episode. I heard that last night this morning. Then Existence. Oh, right, right, right. Your Patreon pick. Yeah, it's our Patreon pick. Now, Existence is a weird choice. Obviously, the person who picked it didn't like it, but I happen to be a big Cronenberg fan, and it is my least favorite Cronenberg film. (laughs) So, Did you see the limo movie? Where it's Robert Pattinson in a limo for Oh an no, and a half. I haven't seen that one and then there was one right before it I think that I hadn't seen. I think the last film I saw of his was Eastern Promises, which I, I quite like. So yeah, it's we're gonna be talking about Existence, which i think is one of the most disgusting to watch movies I've ever seen. Feels about right. It's the craziest movie about gaming I've ever seen, that's for sure. Yeah, why would anybody want to go into that game? 
I don't know. It's going to be an interesting discussion because I have a lot to say about that. But uh, it's an interesting pick for Real Bad because I don't think it's necessarily a bad movie. It's just a hard movie to watch. But maybe my mind will change. We'll find out. Do you want to make Nick watch a weird, bad movie? Throw him some money on Patreon (laughs) and he'll let you pick whatever you want. Control this man's life. Make him miserable. Go to patreon.com slash realbadpod. Is that what it is? Patreon.com slash realbadpod. You know, throw a couple bucks to pick the tier where you get to select a movie and then just make them watch miserable movies once a month. Go do your civic duty and just make Nick's life miserable. To be fair, it's pretty hard to make me miserable with a movie. Um, True. But all of my co-hosts, on the other hand, it's real easy to make all of them miserable. So do your worst. So for all things real bad and cinemakers and everything on the Cage Club Podcast Network, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. I don't remember if that exists or not. Email mailbag at cageclub.me. That exists for sure. Make sure you add that question mark to cinemakers at cageclub.me. Yeah, cinemakers <laughs> question mark at cageclub.me question mark. No, email mailbag at cageclub.me. Just say hi. I think we probably do have a cinemakers email address. But just email mailbag. Even if we don't, I can make one by the time this episode comes out. But email mailbag at cageclub.me. Let us know what you think of these movies, of these little one-off episodes. Is there a director out there that only has two or three movies that you think would be good for this? Like, we really want to do... Like, Shane Carruth is one of the ones that we really want to do. Love his movies. Anna Lily Armorpour, you know... Uh, have the Daniels come out with a second movie yet? Or is there one on deck? I really, Dude, when that happens... Oof. Oh, God. When when the Daniels come out with the second movie. Oh, you know what we should do, Mike? When Bodied comes out this fall, we could do a torque detention Bodied three-peat for Joseph Kahn. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, I'm down for whatever. I've already signed my soul over to the network, so whatever's all good. Email mailbag at cageclub.me. You can just suggest things. We were saying at the beginning of the episode that, you know, when a director adds a new movie, it's sometimes hard to... We don't have to cover four movies in one of these. I don't even know if three would work. But there's a director you know with, like, two. Like, Nick picked one out that we're going to do down the road that has, like, a very old director with two movies uh, that I'm looking forward to doing. But, you know, just just say hi. Let us know what you think of the show and suggest things. We're always open to suggestions. Cinemakers is the only show that Mike and I do that will never end. Really? Just give us your thoughts. We will go from there. Cagelove.me. I'm Jimmy Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Nick Jenkins. And we'll see you next time for Amy Hackerling and Fast Times, a little bit of Nicolas Cage, right here on Cinemakers.